Does the nature of God create contradictions with itself? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Thank you for joining this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast blog and vlog. I guess I should just start calling it the Freed Thinker now at this point since we have several different platforms. Uh, recently, in a couple different videos that I've been watching from uh, other commentators and other apologists online, this topic has continued to come up um, in kind of a new wave. Uh, and then I recently on uh, on Facebook and uh, some several different groups that I'm in have been engaging in conversations uh, with atheists who seem to think that these types of arguments that's somehow innate to some attribute of God, there is a contradiction. And usually this comes down to some basic misunderstanding of uh, classical theism or of biblical theism, uh, one or the other, or of just a really poor grasp of how uh, philosophy works. So I'm going to go through some of these here and talk about some of the reasons why these are just simply bad Objection. So I'm going to go through the ones uh, that this gentleman named Joe has given me in one of the Facebook groups, and then I'm going to add some other ones that commonly come up. So Joe gives these ones. Uh, your God is omniscient and omnipotent, but your God also says that he can change his mind. If your God changes his mind, then it can't be omniscient. All right. First of all, here's uh, a couple problems with this view. Uh, first, I'm not an open theist. Uh, I don't actually think that the best understanding of those passages is that God is is somewhere in the course of history being like, you know what? I learned something new. Let me figure that out. When it says that God is changing his mind, the Hebrew language of it is usually that he is relenting uh, or something along those lines. It has to do with the appearance of God's change in, uh, in, in what he's doing or change in his plan or change in his actions that might appear as though he is changing his mind. It's not as though he's actually learning something, just as in the same way in Genesis 18, where God comes down and says uh, that he's coming down to find out if Sodom and Gomorrah is be are, are being as bad as uh, the cries that have come up to the throne room of God. It's not that God doesn't know and he's really coming down to find out that he didn't know this from all eternity past. He's omniscient. He knows all things. The, the, these are anthropomorphic language dealing with God interacting with us in a certain place or a certain time in history such that God is coming down to, to find out. He's not learning, but it's in that moment he's, he's, he's manifesting himself so Abraham will know that God knows what's happening in the cities of the plain. Same thing when, uh, when it says God has changed his mind. Well, usually this comes from, um, from a very specific passage dealing with how uh, God and Samuel are speaking to Saul as a bad king. Uh, and it says that uh, God has repented of making Saul king. It says that twice, but right in the middle, there's a passage that very clearly says uh, that God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he should repent or change his mind. Um, this is is very cl a clear example of a person not being able to handle what's called the rule or 
the analogy of faith where the more clear didactic uh, express statements of scripture are used as the hermeneutical grid, the, the framework by which we understand the less clear. So what's happening is God's not actually ontologically uh, changing his mind or learning something new. What's happening is God is expressing a change in his plan or his purpose. He is working in sovereign history and doing a new thing, even though he had been doing something else prior to that. This is not some type of change in the omniscience of God. So uh, this objection fails for basic hermeneutical reasons uh, that this person just doesn't understand how to, to handle these biblical passages. And he also seems to think that all, all, all believers are stuck with some type of uh, really bad hermeneutical hyper-literalism of the open theist. So uh, I'm not an open theist. I don't have a bad hermeneutic, so I just don't take that view uh, of, of what he's trying to say to the scriptures. It's like when someone says, oh, well, unless you unless you interpret the Bible, you know, Genesis 1 as this hyper-literal young earth creation is something, then you don't take the Bible seriously. Seriously, you know that that just comes out of usually uh, their their own fundamentalistic backgrounds, where they think in this kind of black and white type of thinking, where it has to be this type of hyper literal diachronic quasi you know attempt at science ex explaining uh, material origins, or else you don't know what you're doing and you're just allegorizing. Right. Uh, for more on that, you can go check out my series on the podcast dealing with Genesis 1. If I get enough feedback again, uh, the, the, the videos uh, here on the YouTube channel is meant to be more interactions, uh, apologetics with unbelievers, uh, with atheists and so forth. Uh, so I haven't really carried over a lot of my in-house discussions dealing with how we ought to understand Genesis 1. But in, if enough of you atheists are interested in, in those different views and why a bunch of us are not young earth creationists or old earth creationists for that matter, Matter, or evolutionary uh, theistic um, evolutionists. I, I, I deny all three of those. Um, if you are interested in some more of those perspectives on how uh, how Christians are, are understanding those passages, I'd be more than happy to start transferring some of that content over here to the video and replicating it here. <clears throat> all right, so let, let's go on to another one. Um, this gentleman Joe says we can add in. We can add in. Can your God make me have a thought five minutes from now that he didn't know about? Um, the answer is no, <laughs> uh, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one of them, even though I'm, I don't affirm libertarian views of freedom, I am a compatibilist, and I do think uh, that our free thoughts are unforced. They are uncoerced. Though they're determined, they're unforced. God cannot make me have a thought that I did not ever, according to my reason-responsive capacities and my free will, uh, choose to have that thought or along those, uh, whether or not I chose it. If, if, if it came from my reason-responsive capacities, God is not forcing me to have a thought against uh, my will so that I can freely have that thought. Uh, but, the, but the real problem with the question is, can the omniscient God cause me to have a thought that he didn't know about? Right? Um, that's just to say, can an omniscient being be not omniscient? Well, the answer is no, because that just is a logically contradictory state of affairs. Again, this is like the can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift? That's just asking, can an omnipotent being not be omnipotent? No, that's like asking, can a bachelor be married, right? The question is actually a meaningless question. Even though it appears to have semantic meaning to it, it really doesn't. It, it, it is like asking, even though we know what bachelor is, and even though we know what married is, and even though we can kind of understand 
broadly what the question is when someone asks, can a bachelor be married? There's, there's a sense where I know what those words mean, but really conceptually that question is meaningless. It's, it's asking, you know, can there be a square circle? Can there be a, you know, uh, what, what, it, what is the taste of the color seven, right? It, I, I know what those words mean independently, but when strung together that way, it's a meaningless question. It's not actually asking for anything substantive. And so asking, can an omniscient being make me have a thought that it didn't know about five minutes ago? Well, no, because then it's not an omniscient being. You're asking, can an omniscient being be a not omniscient being? At the same time, so the answer to that is just no, uh, no, it, it, it God cannot do that. Uh, he says free will isn't specific in the Bible, so a contradiction be free, between free will and omniscience can be dismissed. I agree with that, uh, even though I think we we do have substantive freedom and more, real moral responsibility in the Bible. I don't think we have libertarian freedom spelled out. I don't think actually the Bible gives us a real metaphysic of freedom. Um, so he, he offers this one, uh, it, but then says it can be dismissed. So I'm not sure why he brought it up, though. It's, it's, it is nice to see that because some people like Dan Barker and others will think that this is like some type of major problem uh, for, for God. Um, he then says, we aren't talking about an omniscient being. We're talking about a Christian God, specifically as described in the Bible, the all-powerful God that can do all, know all, omnibenevolent. That one. I agree, uh, but, I, but I just see no problem with that. The argument that somehow affirming uh, the, the, the God of classical theism, specifically the, the Christian conception of the God of classical theism, entails some type of contradictions, you'd have to substantiate that. By the way, there, there's a couple things to note about this, and, and then I'll give uh, some more, you know, an, another example of these, um, is that this person if they want to make this argument that affirming uh, affirming the existence of God as the Christian God entails these contradictions, they've also closed the door for two other very common atheistic tactics. One of them is that atheism is merely a lack of belief. Uh, this is not an expression of a lack of belief. They are not lacking a belief. They are positing the, the non-existence of a God. Right? They are not lacking a belief. They are positively disbelieving. They are believing in a lack. They believe that no such being as God exists because it entails contradictions. The other one that they can't do is the, well, well I don't have a burden because I can't prove a universal negative. Well, that's just silly. Of course you can approve a universal negative. I can, I can, I can affirm that there are no such things ever anywhere uh, at any time to, that are married bachelors. Right? If I can show that the concept is internally inconsistent or internally contradictory, I can fulfill my burden of demonstrating a universal negative. Right? So if this person wants to make this argument, and if you're talking to someone or if you are an atheist who likes to make these arguments, if you are saying that there is a contradiction within the very concepts of God and somehow this entails a logical contradiction, then, then you're saying that you can actually uh, affirm a universal negative and support it. And so those two tactics are off the table. Um, okay, so what are so what are some other ones? So I mentioned the the can God make a rock so heavy that that he himself can't lift? Um, the answer to that is no, because it's asking again, can an omnipotent being be not an omnipotent being? The other problem with with that one is, is that it's asking for um, it, it's asking for a thing that isn't a thing, right? If if God is perfect in power, um, typically people talk about this being infinite in power. I don't like that term because I. I I actually don't think there is such a thing as an infinite, um, 
in in quantity. Uh, so even though the, I know, I understand that the theist means infinite in quality. That means without without exception, without limit. They don't actually mean it in the qualitative numerical sense where infinity uh, causes problems. There, there's just so much equivocation that happens there. I don't like saying God is infinite in power, perfect in power. The omnipotence means that God can do anything that he desires, that, 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 that whatever he wants to do, there's nothing that pre- can, outside of himself that can prevent him from doing it. However, his own nature can prevent him from doing something. So, uh, for for example, uh, God is omnirational. So God is the, the foundations uh, for for something like the laws of logic. God is truth, and so therefore God cannot do logically contradictory things uh, because of His own nature. In addition, logically contradictory things aren't things, right? There's no such thing as a married bachelor. And so when we say omnipotence is God can do any logically possible thing. Asking if he can create a married bachelor is asking him if he can make a non-thing, if he can do a non-thing, right? Uh, if he can thing a non-thing. Uh, so so the, the answer to these for multiple reasons is just no. But however, let's imagine that you have an atheist. This actually comes up and they say, oh, well, that's just word salad then. You're redefining omnipotence. Omnipotence means he can do anything. And they ignore all this other stuff that I've just said and they want to live in ignorance is bliss, I guess. Okay. That actually um, creates a no-win situation for them. So let's imagine that God can do anything and we remove these logical constraints, right? The logical constraints are actually there in the benefit of the atheist at this point. Um, Now, it's there because I think it's true, um, but the atheist shouldn't really protest to that. So let's imagine that we say, okay, okay, Mr. Atheist, well, we'll we'll take omnipotence to mean that God can do anything, even logically impossible things that aren't things, God can do that as well. What does that mean? Can God create a rock so heavy that he can't lift? Yes. Can he lift it? Yes. Even though he can't lift it? Yes. Why? Because God can do contradictions now. And so the argument that, that, these nat- that, that these aspects create contradictions just is no longer a problem anymore because God can do contradictions. If we take that definition, God's just in the business of doing contradictions and that's not a problem. So no contradiction that an atheist can present would actually be a valid objection to anything to do with Christianity, Christian theism, or the Bible. Right. So uh, so in, in, in doing that, if the atheist wants to push back and say, oh, well, you're redefining omnipotence. First of all, we're not. This has been the standard definition for millennia, uh, long before atheists were coming up with these kind of silly definitions, uh, these silly objections. Um, but but really, it's in the atheist in the skeptic's best interest to keep these logical constraints because it means they actually have a chance uh, of posing some type of contradiction to the Christian theist. What's another one? Uh, another one uh, is is this idea of infinity. I brought it up, right? So so how can you know how can God be be infinite, right? Infinite entails all of these contradictions, and so for God to be infinite in love and infinite in time and all this kind of stuff, right? So uh, the 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 answer to that is well. When, when someone says that God is infinite, they don't mean infinite numerically. They don't mean it quantitatively. They mean it qualitatively. These attributes actually in classical theisms are expressions of God's 
perfection. So it's not that God has an infinite number of omnipotent bits, right? It's that God is perfect in his power, which means that, that there is no limit to his power. Nothing else limits his power outside of himself. So there, there's nothing in his creation that can limit what God can do when he wants to do it. Nothing can overpower him. There's no limits on what he can know outside of his own nature. So there's, there's nothing in creation that can limit what he knows. Right, so um, there, there's he's limitless in love. That means that means he can love as he chooses to love, as he wishes to love, as much as he wishes to love. There's nothing in creation that limits what it means for God to love, and so on and so forth. They are perfections. They are not quantities. Um, and so this idea that that uh, infinity somehow creates this problem uh, for God because of those who say God is infinite really just shows that they don't understand what, what people mean when they say God is infinite. Although, as I've said, I do grant that that is that, that stating that God is that's infinitely something, fill in the blank, isn't the best way to describe it. it. It kind of opens the door to that objection just by the terminology it uses, even though I think what they mean isn't what the objection is really getting at. I just think we're, we're, we're much better in talking about perfect in power, perfect in love, perfect in knowledge is really what we mean by uh, those omni-attributes. Um, so there, there, there are there are other ones of these types of objections that come around. If you have, if you're an unbeliever and you have a, a favorite one that you think that I've missed, go ahead, leave it in the comments. Uh, I'll make a part two to this, responding to those. If you're a believer and you and you have some that you uh, that you have been presented that you're not exactly sure how to address, feel free to also leave those in the comments. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll take those in and see if I can do another video addressing uh, those, uh, those other uh, supposed contradictions. So thank you again very much for joining me on this episode of The Freed Thinker. I hope to see you here again very soon. Good night and God bless.